1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, Vancouver proposes a near 10% property tax increase following Surrey's 17% increase. Why are councils hitting taxpayers with massive tax hikes? Plus, from staffing challenges to severance packages, is the writing on the wall? Should Surrey residents get ready to say goodbye to the RCMP? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's focus on Vancouver. Uh, today, the city announced that its uh, draft 23, 2023 budget includes a proposed 9.7% property tax increase. The total budget for the city sits at about one96 billion, dollars, just a shade under $2 billion. Now, where's that money going? Well, of the 9.7%, 1% is going to go to infrastructure renewal. That's what the city's calling it. Uh, 2.7% of that goes to the Vancouver Police Department and 5% goes to city services. Now, earlier today, uh, Vancouver Council Sarah, Sarah Kirby Young spoke to our Joe Bennett about the proposed increase. Take a listen.
2: Well, let me provide some context on the draft budget that was released yesterday by city staff, and that is that uh, coming into this new term, our team have inherited an an empty and a gutted reserve. In fact, our general stabilization reserve is in the negative. We have a half-billion-dollar infrastructure deficit, and we have years of underfunding uh, services that the city absolutely has to deliver, uh, like police and fire, um, and services that most importantly really matter to residents. So that's some uh, context, and I think that what you're beginning to see with other municipalities around the region, and in fact... To around the province, that there are significant pressures on city budgets, we're seeing the impact of rising inflation, increase in wages and labor costs, and Vancouver unfortunately is not alone in facing these challenges.
1: That is Vancouver Council Sarah Kirby Young speaking to our Jill Bennett a couple of hours ago. So that's where she says the nine point seven percent number comes from. But let us put that in context. Just for a moment here, this weekend Surrey announced a proposed massive seventeen and a half percent property tax increase. Now nine and a half percent of that is specifically due to the police transition, so that's a one-off, or at least f- uh, specific to Surrey. Uh, it is not specific to the rest of the region, of course, um, but that still leaves about 8% increase for the residents of Surrey for other basic services. You look at Coquitlam as well. Let's go through the whole region for a moment. A 5.4% property tax increase. Uh, White Rock is looking at a 9% potential increase for the average single-family homeowner. Langley Township, 7.2% increase. Langley City, get this, 11 11- Seven point five percent, West Van, uh, the blue buds of West Van, still <laughs> expecting a six percent uh, property tax increase. North Van City five percent, Port Moody eleven percent. Um, the lowest we could find was in Burnaby, uh, which was three point nine nine percent, um, so just under four percent uh, as well. Robin, do you remember when we used to talk about maybe one to three percent was your average property tax increase? Like
2: two percent was average. Two percent, average. Yeah. 2 percent. Yeah, uh, and even then there was outrage from you know citizens over yeah, a 2% hike exactly
1: you know you know 4% you know, would be a really bad year and, and people would be riled up about it. Uh, but when you talk about 9.5% for the city and many other communities, a significant amount of increase in, a, in an environment where Wait. we're dealing with inflation, we're dealing with many other affordability challenges. The
2: hangover from COVID.
1: All of that. But uh, what is the core reason? Well, let's talk to our good friend, George Affleck. He's, of course, a former Vancouver City Councillor. He's a host here at CKNW and owner of Curve Communications. Uh, George, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Nice to be here. Uh, Walk me through this. I mean, you heard the numbers today. Uh, What's a guy like you who has been through this budget process? What what goes through your mind? Well, I think
3: that the last number you mentioned about Burnaby at 3.9% is the most informative number you can think about because it's what I always argued when I was there is that there was no savings going on. So Burnaby spent years putting money aside, millions and millions and millions of dollars, a rainy day fund in a way, and Vancouver did not do that. And neither did most other communities across the region. And so what you're seeing here is a, a, a no funds. You can see they created this general stabilization reserve fund. They need more cash to put aside because for many, many years, the city of Vancouver didn't save. They saved for the a rainy day fund. They also spent too much when times were good. The general philosophy I always believe in is when times are good, be careful, save your money, because a rainy day is going to come. And here we are in a rainy day. And now we're asking our, our, our residents, our taxpayers, When times are the most tough to add 10% to their property tax, when they're looking at everything else, this is a time when city and governments should be looking at saying, we're going to save you right now. But because of mismanagement for so many years, we're facing a situation now where we're seeing a massive tax
4: increase.
1: Do you, and I don't want to, I mean, tax revolt is a pretty strong uh, word. And we were hearing some of that from yesterday when Surrey residents were calling in, and I don't blame them with a 17.5% property tax inc- increase, a proposed yeah. 17.5%. But I mean, I, I'm just looking at these numbers. How is this politically marketed um, or pal- palatable uh-huh. for taxpayers?
3: Well, I mean, you heard Sarah talking about, uh, hey, these are things people wanted. They wanted more police, they wanted more street cleaning. Uh, they're delivering on their promises on that. What they're not delivering on, in my mind, is clarity on where they have found places to save. I don't see it in this budget. I don't see where they're really cutting. If you add in the capital budget, which came in December, which is a massive, three, three times the size that it used to be, say, 15 years ago, uh, this is borrowed money that then costs, there's an interest rate sitting at 10% now. When the city has to borrow money, they've got to pay that money back That goes into the operating. For those people who understand, there's a capital budget and an operating budget. The capital budget is either money that they get through development cost levies and things like that, or they borrow to build things like fix-up bridges, to build big infrastructure pools, things like that. The operating budget, day-to-day operations. But you have to pay off any debt in the capital budget through your operating. And so the operating budget in alone, I think the, the assessed uh, cost to manage the capital is like almost pushing 15%. So it, that is a huge problem. And the more they take on, the more expensive it gets to operate the budget.
2: So George, Robin Gill here, uh, back in 2022, mm-hmm. just a few months ago, Ken Sims said that there was no way that a 10% tax hike would be sustainable. Is this a situation, because mm-hmm. you're saying that, you know, this is inevitable and that this is just catching up to the city now, that council's just not going to have a choice and Vancouverites are going to have to suck it up?
3: Well, I mean, hey, guess what? He got 9.6%. He didn't make 10%. So he's, he's delivering <laughs> on that promise. Uh, so, you know, he's not a liar. Um, well, I think that, you know, what, if, if I were them, I would say, okay, sorry, everybody. It's, this year is going to be rough. But here's our four-year projection. Here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to get back to 2% or 3%. There are unknowns. Right now there's collective bargaining that will happen. There's, you know, cost of staffing. These are a lot of unknowns. This budget's probably padded a bit for some of the costs of staffing, Um, but they are delivering on some significant costs. Policing is the biggest line item, and it's a big chunk of this budget. Uh, Streets alone, I mean, you can basically do every percent of of tax increase represents about $8 million. So every time you want $8 million, got to add, you know, very roughly about a percent on on your tax increase. So, if you want $50 million,
1: that's, you know, that's 5 6% increase. Uh, George, we've had significant amount of conversation prior to the election, during the election campaign, about City Hall in Vancouver, but across the region, getting back to basics. So you and I have talked about this, the sewers, mm-hmm. community centres, potholes. Is this the core conversation, when you look at all these budget numbers, that is, it's just a clarion call, you know what, We've really got to talk to City Hall, and they've got to get back to the basics on this stuff. There's too many other pet projects, too many other um, I- items they're getting involved and issues they're getting involved in where they don't need to be involved in, and they've really got to start thinking about getting back to the basics here.
3: Uh, yeah, there's, there is, again, that challenge, though. You think about sewers. There's the construction of sewers, and then there's the operating sewers. Sewers to construction comes from the city capital budget. That's a big expense operating sewers and a lot of that stuff comes through this the decision making for that actually comes from metro and they're out of control too you're talking about a city a budget that's out of control let's go look at metro vancouver those guys have no transparency and they are spending money like crazy if you want to find savings go to metro vancouver and start asking tough questions there because that's where vancouver gets hit the hardest the bigger towns get hit the hardest with metro vancouver all these mayors who decide to spend a lot of money and don't have any oversight, any, any kind of, it's not an they're elected, they're, they're, they're posted there by the city. They're spending billions and billions of dollars, and, and who knows how they're doing it. And that's costing the city of Vancouver, more than any other community in this region, the
1: most money of all. George, thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem. I'm joined by my co-host Robin Gill, who uh, has been here for a couple of days. This is her third day here, and we keep going back to this subject, and it speaks to the importance of Surrey and and how big it is for this region. We were talking, of course, about the police transition, or untransition, whatever you want to
2: call it. First of all, this has been an ongoing saga. It's the most ludicrous story making headlines right now with that double-digit proposed tax hike. It's crazy.
1: 17.5%. And uh, now, uh, as I've said before, uh, the mayor has said a few days ago on this show that uh, 9.5% of that is, of course, due to the police transition. Well, one man who knows law enforcement very well uh, because not only his time as judge and attorney general, but also uh, he has uh, been uh, looking into the issue for many years. I think he was in in a provincial inquiry at one point looking at policing as well. Of course, I'm talking about Wally Opel, former attorney general and lawyer for Boughton Law Corporation, who joins us now. Wally, thank you for speaking to us today.
5: It hey, always good to be with you, Jazz, and, and to you and Robin. Good. Yeah, yeah
1: We've got a lot to talk about here. Sure. Uh, first and foremost, now the city of Surrey says, look, 17.5% increase, 9.5% is due to this transition. Of course, they announced it on a Saturday, which to me just says it's all politics, number one. But more importantly, talk to me a little bit about uh, this 18-month severance. Uh, is, is this a normal thing? Well, Jazz. Let's, let's first of all look to see how we got here.
5: In 2019, Surrey went to the province to ask for the right to establish its own police force. The province agreed. So Surrey then uh, established its own force, and they started to advertise and to recruit officers from across Canada. So now we have 350 to 400 officers that have signed an agreement, collective agreement, with the city of Surrey. So now four years later, Surrey proposes to terminate them by going back to the RCMP. So Surrey is proposing to breach the agreement that they had with all these officers that have come here, moved their families here, and have established themselves here and are policing Surrey. I don't think any judge would be impressed by Surrey's conduct if they were concerned about the amount of severance that they would have to pay. You know, if you're going to breach an agreement, an employment agreement, you have to pay the consequences. And the consequences of an employment agreement is either damages or severance. So that's what Surrey would be up against in the event that this matter, if they went back to... uh, being policed by the RCMP.
1: Wally, uh, Chief Constable Normal Pinsky was on this show uh, in October, right after uh, municipal elections, after Brenda Locke um, uh, became mayor. And we did talk about um, the liability. Uh, here's his comments on the issue of severance in October of 2022. Take
6: a listen. There is a severance package, there's a couple of options there, but it's uh, 18 months. And if you do the math, it's about uh, 60 million. That's our math on the severance, but jazz. the way I look at it is, essentially these people would be out of a job because they didn't come to join any other organization. They came to join this organization. There's also a labor, I would say, contractual issue there as well, in the sense of some of these people have cashed Mm -hmm. out their pensions, and uh, is pensions, the ones that carried their pensions, is it reversible? I don't know. I suppose somebody's going to look into that. There is a wage difference. What about seniority? What does that really mean? If I have somebody with a 10-year service, is it going to be 10-year service over there? What does that mean for promotional opportunities?
1: Uh, Listening to uh, Chief Constable Lipinski, uh, um, first thing I keep saying, I feel, well, he is, number one, what a mess. Number two, uh, Mr. Lipinski uh, or his organization has said, I think they're up to, what, 350 members now. Are we past the point of no return in your mind in regards to reversing this?
5: Well, that's something that Mike Farnworth will have to decide. But but I agree with all those issues that Norm Lipinski has raised. You know, look, if you're going to willfully breach a contract, You have to pay the price, and that's what Surrey will have to do in the event that uh, they go back to the RCM. The other thing that concerns me here, uh, Jazz, is the the persistence of Surrey talking about how the costs are, how expensive it's going to be. Hey, wait a minute. Why did you vote in favor of the transition if you didn't know what the costs were going to be? You must surely have known, City Council, that if uh, you're going to move from one- police force to another there are going to be substantial startup costs that's a given and everybody should have known that and if they didn't know that then why did they vote in favor of a new police force and i'm sure the citizens of surrey's would like to know that
2: wally you've served in cabinet you're a former bc attorney general is it fair that surrey's basically punting this to the province and making it their problem
5: well, well, I don't know. If punting it is the right, right, right term, but there's no question that uh, this is the the province will have to decide because the province has an overall overall responsibility to decide what's good for, for the province and for Surrey. So it's, this is not just about Surrey. This is about uh, the question of how will the RCMP detachment fit in with the overall policing plan that the province has. See, the province has said they're going to go into a regional policing system. So will a police force like the RCMP with its headquarters in Ottawa, how would they fit in with the future of policing in British Columbia? So that's something that Mike Farnworth is going to have to uh, have to consider but as he moves forward. So there's no easy answer here. Uh, Surrey, uh, he has an obligation to listen to Surrey, and uh, and that's what he's doing now. But, uh, you know, Surrey, you can't start changing new uh, police forces every four years. And that's really what Surrey is doing here. And if you're going to do that, then really there are lots of consequences and lots of damages that you're going to have to incur along the way.
2: But you just said it. You can't just keep changing a police force. So have we gone too far down the road, and is it basically a done deal, and Surrey will be stuck with this police service? Well, I, I'm not... That's
5: Mike's problem right now.
2: But
5: <laughs> I, I'm not going to answer that. But I can tell you. In, in
1: regards to the RCMP, though, uh, we, you know we've we've gone from transition, and I've, I've called it untransition. I know that's an inelegant word, but yeah. uh, the the RCMP now, if they wish to make their case, have to prove to the Solicitor General, uh, uh, to Mike Farn- Farnworth, uh, that ultimately they can restaff appropriately and quickly. Uh, in a transparent way where he feels that public safety is an issue. And I think that, that, that is the challenge right now. The RCMP, can you're, they convince you're, yeah. Mr. You're Fordham? absolutely
5: right. Because 37% of the officers who are now a part of the Surrey Police Service came from the RCMP. So there's obviously a shortfall with the RCMP. In fact, all police forces in this province are looking for more officers. There's a shortage so I don't know how the um, RCMP uh, would have the necessary personnel to police the province or police Surrey in the event that the province gave the city council the right to go back to the RCMP. That's clearly a huge challenge.
1: Wally, thank you for your time today. Really appreciate it.
5: All right. Now it's good to be with you.
1: Joining me, of course, is my colleague, uh, Robin Gill. Robin, uh, this is probably the most uh, uh, probably talked about subject on this show the last three days. And I'm glad to have you uh, join me because uh, it, it, it it is ongoing. It continues. Uh, and joining us now uh, is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the Surrey police uh, transition uh, based on some of his words yesterday and also what's uh, transpired over the last 24 hours hours or so. Richard, welcome. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, before we get into the issue of Surrey, uh, I think we should talk just for a brief moment about uh, MLA Melanie Mark. Uh, Just uh, maybe a couple of hours ago in the the legislature, uh, she announced her resignation. It was an incredibly thoughtful and emotional uh, speech that she delivered in the legislature. We have a few few, uh, moments from that speech. Take a listen.
0: This decision
4: did not come lightly. I'm not quitting. If anything, I'm standing up for myself. For the first time in my life, I'm exercising my self-determination as a single mother to put myself and my daughters
0: first.
6: She's changed this place. She's changed our province. She has unimpeachable character. Every memory I have of working with Nani is a treasured one, and I'm so grateful to have been her colleague.
1: Uh, Ms. Mark, uh, I should mention, was the first First Nations woman to serve uh, in BC's legislature. And uh, as a cabinet minister, she was first elected in 2016 and served as minister for advanced education. Uh, and skills and training, and also served as tourism minister. And uh, certainly when I was in the legislature, she uh, was an amazing force. I did text her uh, after her speech today, just to thank her for her service, uh, and all that she had uh, uh, just all that she'd contributed uh, to uh, our province, but a very moving speech today, wasn't it, Richard? It wasn't just moving jazz.
4: It was Uh, foundation rocking, uh, questioning uh, the colonial institutions that we live in in this province. Uh, Part of what she said is she described the legislature as feeling like a torture chamber. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I asked her about that following her speech, she said it was the attack that she received, uh, not as a minister, but as a First Nations woman. She says that women get it far worse uh, than men do in the legislature, in public life, that Indigenous women, Indigenous individuals get it far worse in elected life than everyone else does, uh, that we need to work together to understand uh, the inherent colonialism and racism in our society and row together, as she described it, to help make things better. And she's young, leaving elected life, but she described it as having a lot more to give to help address these fundamental issues. Mm -hmm. She said institutions fundamentally reject change. They are allergic to do things differently, particularly colonial institutions like this legislature and the government at large. And ultimately, she believed she could achieve some through that system, but can achieve more success outside of it.
2: Richard, did she leave the door open at all and maybe suggest that she could come back to politics one day?
4: It, It didn't sound like it, Robin. It sounded like this was someone who was finished in elected life, that she can achieve more outside of it, uh, that her accomplishments, she described, were often criticized and not celebrated, and that she accomplished so much that was not recognized by the media, uh, her colleagues, it seemed, the institution itself, the public. And there is a deep distrust towards that. And yes, she's working on her own health issues. She described she was recently diagnosed with ADHD, that a child is going through a health issue as well, that she needs to be there in Vancouver with them rather than traveling here to Victoria for the legislative session. Again, those things could change, Robin, but it sounded like she believes that, that her skills, her energy that she described, a huge amount of energy and excitement for life and, and changing things can she can be more effective doing that outside of, of this legislative chamber. It,
1: it is an indictment, isn't it, though, when somebody feels they can do more outside than inside. I'm sure. not saying that contribution outside can't be significant. It can be. But you're a lawmaker inside. You should be able to do a lot more. But the fact that an elected official, First, first Nations woman, as I said, elected, uh, feels that more can be done outside of that chamber is an indictment, uh, I think, on all of us to a certain degree in regards to doing better, uh, because it shouldn't be that way. You shouldn't have to... She shouldn't have to make that statement.
4: No, and this is part of what I think she hopes people take from uh, hearing her words. And, and you'll see a lot more on this on the news hour tonight. Uh, I'm going to play in my story as many of these clips as possible uh, so that people can see these words coming from her voice rather than mine. And, and you know, we we saw something similar with uh, Jody Wilson Rabel leaving elected life there. Um, And and Mark said somebody needs to do the research here on the way that Indigenous women, First Nations women, are treated in elected life and that women are treated in elected life and it is not the same as what other people are feeling. And that is a problem with our institution that that I think many agree needs to be addressed because, like you said, Jazz, being in elected life, having that power to be a lawmaker is in some ways the ultimate power and to feel that your voice is not being heard or you are... um, not being properly acknowledged for that uh, is a challenge within our
1: institution. Uh, part of it and this in my assessment is we have uh, politics has gotten to the point where you actually have people who are paid uh, to find fault in everything people do. Yeah. You can focus your attacks, uh, not just media but more so in social media, uh, websites, uh, all of that. Uh, the attacks today are immediate and sustained. And pointed more than ever before It not just about taking criticism on the six o'clock news or the morning newspaper. This is criticism that can start at six in the morning and, and evolve and change but still be persistent all day every day and people pile on because yeah. you're not viewed as a human being you're viewed as a character a politician there is no you're not a human being you're, you're just somebody who can be criticized so uh, I, I and I've been there on the other side of, of, of uh, you know dealing with that criticism as well and I understand where she's coming from it is a tougher business today uh, I think it is still the the ultimate position in regards to doing good in society but the issues that she raised today, And other women have raised should be of concern to everybody, our democracy, because when you cannot attract good people and there is a general assumption amongst the public that we are uh, guaranteed uh, this lifestyle, this democracy, this government, that is not true. Societies can fall very quickly when you don't attract good people. And encourage good people. And when good people can't feel uh, they can do good work, they will put their names forward. But increasingly in politics, good people saying, I don't want that criticism. I'm not going to put myself through it. I'm not going to put my wife through it, my husband through it, my partner through it. I'm not going to put my children through it. And what you're hearing from her is what you've heard from other women as well. That we have to do better or our democracy will suffer. Our leadership will suffer.
4: Yeah, well said, Jazz, and, and I don't think there's a lot to add in that regard, but you are correct in your notion that our institutions are the strongest when the best of our society feels like they could be involved in our institutions. And uh, when that is no longer the case, our institutions falter.
1: Absolutely. We are speaking to Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. We were just talking about uh, MLA Melanie Mark announcing her resignation uh, in the legislature. Uh, of course, Richard will have more on that story on tonight's news. News hour. Let's talk about the issue of the moment, which is of course the Surrey, city of Surrey's police transition. Uh, earlier this week, uh, the mayor of Surrey said a seventeen and a half percent property tax increase is coming. Nine and a half percent of that uh, would be for the uh, transition back to the uh, Surrey RCMP. Now earlier today, Richard Vaughn Palmer, a columnist with the Vancouver Sun, was on, was on with Simi Sarah and he talked a little bit about the provincial government's uh, skepticism when it comes to moving back to the RCMP, basically picking up on some of the comments you made yesterday. But let's take a listen to Vaughn here.
0: Farmer said, I'll tell you one thing we're not going to approve. We will not approve any plan to retain the RCMP that entails restaffing the RCMP in Surrey with officers transferred from other RCMP serviced communities in BC, like Prince George or anywhere else in BC. I'm guessing that farmers just told us what the problem was with going back to the RCMP, is there isn't a plan that involves preserving the RCMP that doesn't involve raiding RCMP officers from other parts of British Columbia. I took that as a pretty big hint that the the provincial government, the solicitor general's ministry, is skeptical about the transition plan going back to the RCMP.
1: Now, Richard, is this the, one of the main points that could actually uh, mean the Mike Farnworth and the government are looking at keeping the SPS?
4: for sure i'm learning a little bit more about exactly what is in that plan it's never been made publicly available but what Vaughn was referencing was part of the original plan it is no longer part of the plan that the rcmp was planning on moving officers from other parts of the province to surrey to help offset the losses of uh, officers who've already committed to going to the surrey police service what i've also learned about the plan uh and that is currently missing Uh, is the idea of how many people actually graduate from the RCMP. So the numbers that are being used by the RCMP uh, and the City of Surrey are based on how many people are in the program to become RCMP officers, and it does not factor in the number that fail. And about 17% of those that start the program don't finish, which means there could be a shortage of 17% policing we also know that right now in surrey about 20 percent of all calls are done by the surrey police service so the rcmp doesn't just need to maintain its current staffing numbers it needs to increase and the last piece i am told that the minister is concerned about are retirements uh the plan does not factor in how many people are planning on retiring in the short term and we know uh that uh Based on uh, graduation, more people are planning on retiring in the short term than will graduate to replace them uh, in Surrey. All of this has the province pointing to a shortage. And we also know that there are officers interested in joining Surrey Police and have already committed to doing so because they want to live in Metro Vancouver. They don't want to be in a position with the RCMP where they can be moved to Burns Lake, to Vanderhoof, to Williams Lake, and away from Metro Vancouver. All of that points to the fact that the RCMP has a serious problem here to ensure that they get the staffing. And I think ultimately, Jazz, this comes down to the fact that Brenda Locke did not have all the information that she needed when she was running for mayor and that some of this was not provided to her when she made the big promise of going back and it is proving to be much more challenging than she ever believed it was when she was making this commitment on
1: the campaign trail. Those are all very good points you make. Now let's go back to an interview I did with Norm Lipinski, Chief Constable uh, of the Surrey Police Service uh, in October right after Uh, the civic election when Brenda Locke was elected. Take a listen to what he had to say in regards to the 18-month severance uh, package conversation.
6: There is a severance package. There's a couple of options there, but it's uh, 18 months. And if you do the math, it's about uh, $60 That's our math on the severance. But, Jazz, the way I look at it is essentially these people would be out of a job because they didn't come to join any other organization. They came to join... This organization, there's also a labor, I would say, contractual issue there as well, in the sense of some of these people have cashed out their pensions and uh, is pensions the ones that carried their pensions? Is it reversible? I don't know. I suppose somebody's going to look into that. There is a wage difference. What about seniority? What does that really mean? If I have somebody with uh, ten years service, is it going to be ten years service over there? What does that mean for promotional opportunities?
1: I mean, when you listen to what you've just said to uh, to us, Richard, uh, uh, based uh, picking up from what Vaughn was saying, and what we just heard from Mr. Lipinski. This is back in October. Uh, Boy, if you if you're a betting person, it seems to me that uh, things are leaning more and more towards keeping the Surrey Police Service, and this is
4: nothing to do with the politics of it. I don't believe jazz. I Mm -hmm. think the province respects the fact that the people of Surrey elected a council and a mayor who want to see things go back to the RCMP for that service to continue in the community. They respect that and understand that, but ultimately it comes down to the point of no return and significant staffing issues that were not accounted for during an election and during a commitment. And there was optimism from the mayor that she would be able to ensure that those officers currently working for the RCMP returned. And she had commitments from Ottawa that the RCMP would ensure enough people were on the ground in Surrey. I think those were promises from the brass in Ottawa that just can't be kept based on all of the things we've discussed. And that is making it highly challenging for the city of Surrey to produce the documentation for the province to show them that they actually have the boots on the ground in order to do that there's just such a huge gap that now exists with staffing that filling that gap especially we haven't even talked about the general labor shortage that we're experiencing across the board with that factoring in it makes it a challenge that seems to be based on what we're hearing step by step from the minister uh, an insurmountable challenge here
1: oh fascinating story richard any idea i've got about 20 seconds here any idea when we can expect a decision
4: yeah, my guess is just before March break. So, at some point in the next few weeks, the last one was pushed back, obviously, but the minister wants to get this done. He desperately wants to stop talking about this and get this off his desk. He doesn't believe this is his issue. This is an issue for the people of Surrey. And so, expect that conversation or that decision pretty soon.
1: Hey, I don't want to stop. I don't want to keep talking about this either, but it's such a big issue. But I really <laughs> well, listen, appreciate we'll, your time, my friend. Eventually, we'll get a decision. <laughs> we will. Thanks so much, Richard. Yeah, thanks, so focus a little bit on uh, another subject, which is very interesting. I'm assuming you have subscription services that uh, you, you subscribe to, like streaming...
2: I've got a couple of streaming. I've got Uber, obviously, Uber Eats, that kind of stuff. You have
1: Uber Eats, so Mm -hmm. there's a monthly fee you pay.
2: There's a loyalty program, yeah. There is a
1: loyalty program. Okay, so I I don't have the the Uber uh, Uber Eats, but I do have, of course, Spotify. I've got Netflix and Amazon Prime. But more and more, uh, there is a trend beginning in the United States where consumers are willing to pay for – uh, not streaming services, of course they have that already, but uh, to pay for services like restaurants, subscriptions to restaurants.
2: Yes, you know what's interesting? A Michelin star restaurant signed up to this subscription service. So really? it's not just chain restaurants, it's not just, you know, fast food, that kind of thing. But they're actually a restaurant restaurant. You pay yeah. a monthly fee. Yeah, it's like 130 uh, for like five to ten dollars. 130 dollars, you get like this amazing meal. Like it depends on what what restaurant it is, of course.
1: Wow. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about subscription models for restaurants is Ian Tostenson, He, of course, is the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Good afternoon, Ian. Hey, Jess. Hey, Robin. How you doing? Well, we're doing very well, and I it, it was very interesting when I was reading about this uh, story uh, late yesterday. It, it, there was a restaurant or a bar in San Francisco, uh, you know, where you pay eighty nine dollars per month, but you get a hundred dollars in dining credits. Uh, you also get a free drink when you come to the bar. You also got uh, you know high end uh, chains like PF Changs that are offer, also offering for, for six ninety nine. Uh, you yeah. get free delivery. Could this work in a place like Vancouver, Ian?
7: Well, I think Surrey taxing would be easier to figure out than this. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is like so. I've been thinking about this since you and I talked earlier, and I and I've made a number of you know number of calls. And but the part, of, I mean, it, it really on the outside, it you know, it's the the loyalty aspect of it, something unique. I have a relationship with my restaurant that only I have. Um, I think there's Panera. Uh, does well because they, they do a subscription for coffee, so you pay X amount of dollars a month to get free coffee. That's kind of cool. You walk in, flash your flash your badge, mm-hmm. if you will, and you get free coffee, and that kind of is good. I mean, I I have a couple of restaurant cards that get me a discount just because a couple of restaurants have done that, and it's kind of cool when you pull out your card and you go, "Great!" I mean, this is like ten or fifty percent discount. I don't use it very often because it takes money out of the pocket of the server, but those things kind of render a little bit of status. <laughs> But when you look at a, a couple of wineries, so what the wine business in BC is another example. They do um, a subscription service, if you will, and you could subscribe to them, and they'll send you a certain number of bottles of wine. And talking to a couple of wineries today, which is very similar to what we'd be headed to, very difficult to manage. So you need software, you need people, and you need to keep track of all this kind of stuff. And so... You know, you imagine in a winery, you're shipping out wine, and and a little bit of it's customized, and it's based on price points and stuff. Same with restaurants. Um, I think it works in some cases. Um, I was talking to our friend Kelly over at Roamer's this afternoon. Mm -hmm. He thinks it's a cool idea if you have an item that's unique that um, you don't mind paying a subscription to have access to that, or a unique time, or maybe it's, you get, you know, unique patio time or unique places on the patio. Uh, It's all good stuff because it's, it's membership driven. It's like going to a golf course. You have all these different perks. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is trying to manage this. And if you imagine if, you know, if Jazz and Robin walk in and they've got their membership paid up and they walk in and they can't get it right. Or you've got someone that goes, "I I don't really know who you are or whatever the confusion so I think it's fraught with danger. I think, uh, Robin, you raised an interesting point about subscriptions when it comes to food delivery. So you can subscribe to like Uber Eats or DoorDash and you get, you know, discounts or no delivery fees and certain get your food faster than the guy next door. Those sort of perks. But I think we're a ways away at um, Jazz from seeing this. I mean, part of the problem is not to change the topic, but you need people to run this. And we're, exactly. we basically don't have enough people to run anything right now. Um, without being frantic at all times, so it it really requires a lot of strategy.
2: Well, it's the labor shortage, but you also have to think about you have to pair up with something like Uber or Lyft to get it delivered. <laughs> so how is it any different yeah. from Uber Eats?
1: But isn't the the, the challenge yeah. there like for, for your Uber Eats subscription? So what do you pay per month for that?
2: It's something like nine ninety nine.
1: And what do you get for yeah. that? But
2: I get a discount on Uber, my Uber rides.
1: What kind of discount? Yeah. Like is it for every ride you take? I you get, get like
2: yeah five percent off.
1: Every, ride. Every and you, ride, and you use Uber quite a bit. Yeah, and is that for food then too? You get a discount, and there? then you
2: get a discount on food. You get free deliveries, and sometimes it's like a two for one for certain restaurants. I try to support um, restaurants that can afford this, obviously, because you know, yeah, they, there's a big cut that but, they t- a loss that they can take too. Yeah,
1: it's interesting that uh, Robin says that here. You have a, a massive massive conglomerate, but it's a big company, global really, in the grand scheme of things. Head office in San Francisco that they can afford to do this. Uh, but it, it, it is concerning, as you say, Ian, that, it, that the local uh, business can't do this because of the software costs, the labor challenges that are there, uh, and it, it, it falls to the Ubers of the world or the ma- bigger restaurant chains that can only do this. Because one would assume, just looking at the familiarity that you have, let's say you have a local bar that you love going to, that, it, that the industry itself is ripe for that type of disruption.
6: Yes.
7: Yeah, it it totally is, and I think if it was a bit more normal and, and, you know, we didn't have the effects of inflation and, you know, labor and all that kind of stuff, there's some innovation you could really do around this, but you've got to do it um, en masse. So you can't sort of have – I was reading one restaurant, I think they have like 100 customers, and I'm thinking that's not very good because 100 customers you're going to manage – you know, you're managing 100 customers with a person. That's not very efficient. And you're totally right about the delivery companies. They can do this all day long. They can offer, you know – free this and have an extra that and 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 you go to 711 on your way you get an order from you know Uber and they say by the way do you want us to stop at 711 and get you something else Like it's getting kind of, kind of the added value seems to be embedded in that and it for now that's the best way for us to do it because i can't imagine too many restaurants now robin you mentioned the michelin star restaurant that's interesting because they're smaller They've got a lot of people to run a Michelin uh, star restaurant just by nature of keeping that rating. So you can see how they can kind of finesse that. I think you're right. One hundred and thirty dollars, and once a month you get this three course curated meal delivered to your house. Um, some people are doing, you know, alcohol with it, but it's a very specialized part of the market where we tend to need volume, margin, cash. That comes from lots of transactions and not getting too bought down with, uh, you know, individual customization at yeah. this point.
2: But if it's something special like a Michelin star, don't you kind of want to go into the restaurant and you eat would. it? And you, you want the you ambiance did? and the food no. not to be cold no, and whatnot.
7: No, no, no. <laughs> you get your subscription on Uber, you get it for free, you watch your Netflix, you're just
1: subscribing there, you're good to go.
2: <laughs> then you don't have to talk to your dinner companion, right, Ian? That's right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there you go. Ian, yeah, thanks
2: for your time. Yeah, okay, guys.